Welcome to False Flag Weekly News, the weekly news show that continues to dig deep behind the headlines and find all of the creepy crawly things that you find when you try to search for the truth and actually find some of it at least. Hey, Cat uh, McGuire's back. Welcome, Cat. How are you? Hey, Kevin. Hi. Fine. Yeah, good Good to have you back. And we have a, a really a, an exciting and horrific show this week because of the, the terrible, terrible things that happened this week, which I think are even a little more uh, disturbing than the usual show. So I guess we have to do our, our quick disclaimers and explain that people might get disturbed by learning about what's really happening in the world. So, Ellen, do you have those slides that we always use to disclaim everything? Okay, we, we question things. Now, that's disturbing. And what else? We uh, uh, we disturb, and that's disturbing. And finally, we are not medical or mental health professionals. So if you want to pay us the going rate for doctors, uh, you're welcome to. We have a fundraiser, and just uh, send us that money, and maybe you'll feel better. Maybe you won't. All right, moving on to the show. Uh, yeah, here's here's one of our favorite images from the week. Kat sent me this, and I, I saw it. Uh, uh, sort of like the World Trade Center uh, with the miraculous hijacker's passport. And they also found those in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, too, apparently. So, uh, Pat, and then Char Charlie Hebdo was full of pa passports where terrorists just throw down their passport. Uh, so I guess the Russians throw down their passports, too. Um, and, of course, that, yeah, I was being sardonic. And here's our slide for the week. Uh, good old Joe Biden telling us that we just blew up Nord Stream, World War Three is now underway. Uh, duck and cover. Put your head under a desk, kiddies. <laughs> uh, I think I'm putting my head under the desk right now. All right. And finally, uh, we have one more announcement. Lauren Guyano's film 9-11 in Israel's Great Game will be broadcast on noliseradio.org on Sunday, October 9th. And you can go to noliseradio.org for the details. Okay, let's let's get to the news here. Um, oh, another PSA. Wow, what a lot of PSAs. Um, so this is the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we're closer to nuclear war now than we were then. So this would be a good time to find a defuse nuclear war protest near you. So if you go to this website, defuse nuclear war, uh, you can figure out how to protest. On Friday, October 14th, there will be picket lines at the House of Representatives or Senator's local office. And on Sunday, October 16th, people will be demonstrating, flyering, and putting out banners. I, I'm actually sort of thinking about maybe driving up to Lambeau Field in Green Bay, where the Green Bay Packers are playing at noon that day, and doing a tailgate party, a little protest tailgate party. Um, if anybody is anywhere near Wisconsin or Green Bay and wants to get involved with that, email me, truthjihad at gmail.com. All right. So, well, Pat, you're, you're an activist. Are you doing anything? Um, no, actually, um, I'm leaving tonight for Europe. So, <laughs> oh, well, good luck with that. I, I hope you find food and fuel. I, I know it's uh, kind of crazy, but that's where I'm going. But for anyone doing activism around diffuse um, the nuclear war, um, I highly recommend that maybe you can read John F. Kennedy's powerful uh, 1963 AU speech, American University speech calling for a comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty. It's considered one of the finest, most important calls for world peace ever made because Kennedy said in that historic speech that the U.S. was seeking complete disarmament of nuclear weapons and vowed that America will never start a war. So I would love for you to just read his speech if you're going to do any kind of activism there. That's a great speech. Yeah, you're right. And that speech might be one of the many reasons uh, that got him killed, uh, which <laughs> yeah, they, they really sent a message with that one. Well, uh, if Kennedy's words had been heeded, uh, we wouldn't have had this long list of near misses with nuclear war. And here's one of them that most people haven't even heard of. The 1983 Able Archer nuclear test, the greatest intelligence failure in U.S. history, when Soviet Premier Yuri Andropov believed that the Reagan administration was about to launch a first strike, a nuclear strike on Russia. There was a NATO exercise, and they thought that was cover for nuclear war. In other words, the exercise was going to go live. So it got very close. The Russians went to hair trigger alert. They were just about to shoot. And the only reason the world didn't go up in nuclear flames was that a U.S. Air Force lieutenant general named Leonard Perutz, uh, who was serving at that time as NATO deputy intelligence chief, got reports of this, uh, that the Russians had gone to this super ultra DEFCON, you know, 1.1 or whatever. And uh, normally the, the NATO would have then mirrored that and gone to that same extremely high alert. But Perutz screwed up. 
and he uh, uh, decided not to recommend that NATO mirror the Russian alert. And he almost got fired later for saving the world from nuclear holocaust. And the, the dressing down that he got said his Perut's decision made in ignorance was fortuitous, if ill-informed. <laughs> that was the official response for to say this guy saving the world from nuclear holocaust. So, you know, these, these new U.S. leaders are just too stupid and arrogant to understand how others see them. And so the, the Russians are paranoid and defensive. They were in 1983 and they are today for probably pretty good reason. And American leaders have no institutional memory of ever having the U.S. homeland actually under threat from a bordering country. And the Russians have had nothing but that for their entire history. So they're super paranoid and they have reason to be. And the U.S. leaders just keep poking them and egging them on. And the result is going to be really ugly if we don't do something to stop it. Your thoughts, Ken? Right. Well, actually, the article said the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was equally as dangerous as Abel Archer. And let's not forget that it wasn't a paranoid Russian naval officer. It was um, a Russian naval officer in a submarine off the coast of Florida who exercised extraordinary restraint under murky circumstances to not launch a nuclear torpedo attack. So thank you for that Um um, he, he's gone down in history as nameless, but it was a Russian who. No, no, they, um, they, his name is out there. If you Google, I like, know, but you know, nobody remembers. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, no, nobody knows about this Perutz guy, this American who saved the world, or this Russian who saved. There are all these individuals who made these decisions, but of course now we're putting AI in charge of all this. The human factor will be removed, and so I think that's pretty much all she wrote, unless something yeah. big changes soon. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay, well, more uh, gigantic disaster news. And compared to nuclear war, this is a pretty minor disaster. But compared to most disasters, this was a pretty huge disaster in Florida. Worse than Katrina, uh, Hurricane Ian hit 155 miles an hour, which is just two, two miles an hour short of a Category 5, the highest category. And giant walls of water were throwing boats and telephone poles and palm trees all around like toys. Uh, it's going to cost billions to clean it up. And... It's uh, the scariest thing about it, as we see in the next slide, is that it could very well be that our own government either created, uh, steered or intensified this hurricane to provide cover for the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline, which is uh, essentially the first shot in in uh, all out World War Three. Uh, now, that sounds a little extreme, but I think if you actually uh, look at it carefully, it wouldn't be that surprising because uh, the. Uh, look at look at these these headlines. The top seven stories of the day in the Washington Post: the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, basically World War Three starts, is is number four, <laughs> and the top three are all about the hurricane. I don't know, Kat. What do you think? Am I am I completely bonkers to imagine that maybe harp and weather modification technology might have actually intensified or steered this hurricane in order to pro provide cover for the U.S. attack on Nord Stream? No, I love your analysis about the weather modification. Um, I actually initially thought that the hurricane was punishment to Ron DeSantis for his Martha's Vineyard prank. But um, yes, you made legitimate speculation that the worst hurricane ever unleashed was to detract the public from the worst false flag ever unleashed. But Kevin, um, I completely disagree with your analysis that um, Biden launched, it's Biden who launched World War III. And you wrote, I quote, even if the job were subcontracted to the British or the Israelis or Blackwater or CIA trained Ukrainians, only the top of the U.S. command chain could have authorized the operation. Kevin, I'm just stunned that you wrote that because if you substitute Nord Stream with 9-11 and that it would be identical to saying only Rumsfeld, Bush or Cheney, um, as you put it, um, would quote, um, be the top of the U.S. command chain could have or, uh, authorized the 9-11 operation. Well, they did. Of course they did. Uh, well, you know, we know very well that those three puppets did not mastermind or ultimately No, they didn't mastermind. They, author they authorized. Yeah, but what you're making it sound like was it, as everyone is saying, it's the U.S. We know it was Israeli Zionists and PNAC neocons who, who did it. And if the U.S. Navy pulled the trigger on the Nord Stream uh, pipelines, it, just like with 9-11, the shots were actually masterminded by those who really control the U.S. chain command, uh, command chain, and that is indisputably 
elite diaspora Jews. And so the way you wrote it, it made it sound like only the U.S. did it. It wasn't the Israelis. It wasn't the British. That's just not true. Pulling the trigger versus masterminding it are two different things. Hmm. Well, okay. I guess I'm sounding too much like Caitlin Johnstone now, huh? Yes. Blaming yes. the U.S. empire for everything. Well, yeah, you see, I, I see it as, as, I, as we explained uh, in our email exchange on this. I see this as 9-11 was basically Israel versus the Middle East, and they hijacked the American military for purely Israeli objectives. And to the extent that any American leaders got sucked into it, uh, they were basically duped. However, what we have right now is the U.S. empire and the U.S. dollar that sustains it is about to die. And they're desperate to keep that U.S. empire going. It is a U.S. empire that, you know, where taxpayers are paying for it. It's almost all American might. It's mostly American money and so on and so forth. And the decisions are largely made in Washington, D.C., New York, Hollywood. Yeah, a high percentage of, of the people making the decisions happen to be of Jewish ethnicity. And some of those people want a super bellicose U.S. empire because they think that's what's going to sustain Israel. So that's one of the factors. But I don't see this as like a 100% Jewish or Israeli operation to go after Russia. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, there's ancient ethnic hatreds to beat up on Russia. But ultimately, U.S. empire is about to crash and they're desperately trying to save it. That's what this is really about. Well, just as the Ukrainians are our proxy boots on the ground for this war with Russia, I would contend, and I think there's a lot of facts to support it, that the U.S. government and the, the U.S. total is a proxy for um, an empire of diaspora and Jews. Yeah. It, we, there's it's, uh, much evidence. Yeah, we, we, could, we could probably argue about that all day, um, but I'll uh, sort of agree to semi-agree and semi-disagree with you and move on to the Nord Stream issue in more detail. Let's look at what happened first. Uh, Russia, uh, recognizes that, well, they recognized Donbass independence back in February. And now, uh, the Donbass republics held referenda with turnout over 80% and allegedly a vote total over 90%, uh, to join Russia. So that means that from now on, that territory, which the Ukrainians are fighting for and in some cases fighting on is part of Russia and Russia's doctrine allows for and in fact demands the use of nuclear weapons to defend any Russian territory that's under attack. So we're right on the brink of nuclear World War III right now. And that Donbass referendum was, of course, an escalation from the Russian side. And I believe it was met with an escalation from the what I would call the American side in destroying these pipelines in order to destroy the possibility of Germany uh, mending its fences with Russia and saving itself from starvation and uh, freezing to death this winter. Yes, I agree. Um, there were 133 international observers from 28 countries who oversaw the referendum, and that included diplomats, experts, UN-approved NGO reps, um, politicians in the media. Yet the West is saying the referendum was um, illegal and that the observers violated numerous international principles. When the West doesn't like the results of a people's vote, they, dis they dismiss it as fake, just like they did when Hamas won in Gaza. Um, yesterday, I don't know if you listened to Putin's speech. It was incredible. He gave a, a speech for as part of the annexation signing ceremony. He, he actually gives good speeches. Oh, it was an amazing speech. Compare I think that it, to Biden and, and Harris. Well, that's no comparison. That bar is so low, you can't, you shouldn't even bring it up. But his speech, I think, was an historically extremely important speech in defense of nationalist values and national sovereignty. He boldly defended Christianity, the nuclear family, the nation state, the right of the people to preserve their culture. I totally support Russia and Putin. Um, and he, he called think, the West satanic too. Don't forget. Yes. That. Yes, Which is true. and I, I believe that they are the strongest counterbalance in the world right now to that globalist, brave new world order that's um, barreling down on us all. Well, I can't disagree with you too much on that point, so let's move on to something maybe we can disagree on. Uh, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> well, actually, I hate to admit it, Kat, but I actually kind of like Tucker Carlson every now and then, and I thought he did a pretty good job here uh, telling a lot more truth about the fact that it's obviously, let's face it, the uh, – Americans or the Zio, Anglo-Zionist empire, whatever you want to call it, they're the ones obviously that blew up this pipeline. As he, as, as Tucker said, uh, Putin would have to be a suicidal moron to blow up his own energy pipeline. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Biden, uh, who's threatened to do it before it happened, 
uh, is also the president who said climate change is the most pressing emergency in the history of the world. And he just did the worst ever uh, release of the worst climate change gas, methane. So um, it, it sort of makes you wonder about the sincerity of these climate change people when they do things like this and they fly to Davos and their Learjets to talk about climate change. Right. Um, all these Russia-phobes are looking for nine ways from Sunday to blame it on Putin. Um, but here we have um, uh, Biden himself on camera openly saying that the U.S. will bring an end to Nord Stream 2. Unbelievable. And then in January, Under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland, who is just a caricature of Machiavellian diplomacy and the one who did the Ukrainian coup d'etat in uh, 2014, she likewise engaged in anti-Russian saber rattling, saying one way or another, we'll stop Nord Stream. So it's like, you know, can we bring this to court, the the, the uh, criminal court in The Hague? Um, I, I'm, I don't think, though, that if the West doesn't strike first, I don't think um, Russia will unleash the nukes. That's that's more of U.S. Uh, the West is saber rattling. And um, Tucker explains alternatives Russia could do, like sever the undersea um, Internet cables so that there's no Internet. And that would do massive ja- damage if banks couldn't talk to each other. Everything would come to a halt. So um, I, I really appreciate Tucker. He's one of the few mainstream media, almost the only mainstream media personality, uh, one or two others mainstream his reports are just go-to reports. Who ever thought I would be going to Fox to get really good, hard-hitting news? Right up front, he had the line perfectly. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of confused, too, because back when I was doing 9-11 Truth in 2006, the people coming after me were the Fox News people, namely Hannity and O'Reilly. So finding uh, a, tr- a bit of a truth or at least a, a half-truther on Fox is kind of shocking. Um, well, if you want to move to a little more truth than you're even going to get from Tucker, you could check out the substacks of people like Eugippius, uh, who is here. I, I think he's a German guy who's done a lot of work on COVID. And uh, he agrees with people like Pepe Escobar and others that the U.S. is really at war with Germany as much as with Russia. And that this attack on Germany's energy lifeline illustrates it perfectly. Right. Um, it's kind of funny that the uh, German and EU officials have promised to get to the bottom of this. They Everybody's clearly seen that um, it was sabotage, and they're saying that they're going to issue sanctions when they find it. Yeah, right. That's like going after your boss. They're not going to take on their superiors. And it's just so unfortunate that the German leaders are traitors, not just to Germans, but to all of Europeans, because Germany is the economic powerhouse giant. If Germany goes down, all the rest of Europe is going to have a really, really hard time. Um, Clearly, that's part of a much bigger plan than that pointless Ukraine war that's just the stoking the bear part of it. It's kind of funny that they're saying, we're going to sanction whoever did this. Because when they sanctioned Russia, they actually hurt themselves more than Russia. So maybe if they blame Russia and then sanction Russia, it'll actually uh, hurt themselves again. No, no, they, they're going to have to blame themselves. They'll blame the Americans. They'll blame NATO or whatever. But if they even blame blame the right people and then sanction them, maybe those sanctions, too, will backfire and actually hurt Russia. Because so far, the sanctions yeah. on Russia haven't hurt Russia. So sanction Russia's enemies, and maybe it'll actually mm-hmm. hurt Russia. These people are shooting yeah. themselves in the foot left and right. They might as well take it all the way. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a circular firing squad. Yes, totally, totally. Okay, well, Moon of Alabama is another good alternative source here from another German guy. Uh, it's interesting. There are some German truth tellers out there. I, I thought they were all in prison. Uh, anyway, uh, here's <laughs> the uh, Moon of Alabama guy. Uh, I forget his name. Uh, giving us some background facts uh, to try to sift through the rubble and the bubbles. I guess the bubble rubble and figure out who blew up this pipeline. And it's, uh, you know, I think even Inspector Clouseau could get this right pretty quick. Yeah. Um, well, like with 9-11, which required far more than a day to install controlled demolitions in the skyscrapers, so too this bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines likewise required advanced preparation. And there's plenty of fingerprints and uh, evidence lying all over um, a lot of suspicion revolves around NATO maneuvers that took place in the Baltic Sea in June and July in the exact area of the pipelines. The U.S. Sixth Fleet was doing maneuvers called Ball Tops 22, B-A-L-T-O-P-S. They were using the USS 
Kursage, Kursarge, the largest warship of the U.S. Navy, was there. And part of their operations were to test special sub-sea mine destruction technologies. And they were doing this this summer off the coast of Bornholm, Denmark, the island where the pipeline explosions took place. What a coincidence. (laughs) Pardon? Yeah, coincidences extraordinaire. Um, So, and then just days before the explosion even, um, the USS Kursage was seen roaming around Bornholm. So, uh, Bornholm. So it's just, um, really crazy. There's all kinds of other bits of evidence as well. It's, it's just so clear. For me, um, a, a telltale one was in the very beginning when, um, the, um, the explosion was first announced. The New York Times just said sabotage. They never once said Russian sabotage because they would be the first to pounce on that. So if they didn't say Russian in their very first, you know, putting the storyline out there, they don't have anything to go with. Well, because it's just such a ridiculous accusation, as Tucker pointed out. Um, Well, I thought one of the key passages in this Moon of Alabama article was when he wrote that in a world where Germany and Russia are friends and trading partners, there's no need for U.S. military bases, no need for expensive U.S.-made weapons and missile systems, and no need for NATO. And there's also no need to transact energy deals in U.S. dollars or to stockpile U.S. treasuries. So uh, who benefits here by blowing up this pipeline? I really have to wonder. And Pepe Escobar pretty much agrees, too. In the next story, um, Pepe points out that, yeah, this is a declaration of war by the usual suspects on Russia and Germany, and maybe Germany first and then Russia. Yeah, I love how Pepe Escobar says uh, disaster capitalism has brought to a whole new toxic level. Um, the, the Cold War against Russia never really ended because the agenda has always been to implement regime change in Russia. This isn't just against Germany. Implement regime change in Russia to take control of Russia's vast bounty of raw materials and eliminate Russia as a competitor on the, the global stage. So with everybody pointing the finger at the U.S., because our fingerprints are all over um, the USS Kersage, um in the Baltic, um, I think it's really important that we acknowledge Pepe Escobar's definition of who the, quote, American elites are who are doing this. Um, Pepe's a, a pretty um, intelligent analyst of geopolitics, and he outright says that the American elites that everybody's pointing the finger at are, quote, the deranged Straussian neocon infested, uh, quote, intel community as well as big energy, big pharma, and big finance. Well, the Straussian neocons are 100% Jewish. Well, maybe 95%. All right, 95%, as is big pharma and big finance, 95%. I don't know about big energy, but I would like to say a couple other great insights that Pepe Escobar um, had. He said that the TAC is payback in advance for the inevitable defeat of the West in the Ukraine. Yes. I mean, it's clear Russia has the military might to trounce Ukraine. And, and that's actually also- good news because that means Russia won't have to use nukes. Uh, they'll, pro- they'll be able to win without them. Uh, so <laughs> a well, bit of good news. But in the next slide, now you're, you've been making this point uh, repeatedly already today, and Paul Craig Roberts comes out with a very strong use of the dreaded J word in this headline. Are Jews dri- again driving the Western world into a fatal war? And he cites Ron Unza's revisionist work on World War II, which I also uh, think is pretty much on target. Uh, and so Paul Craig Roberts is comparing these two situations, and he's pointing out, that uh, there's not a single white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the Biden cabinet. Uh, All the powerful positions are held by Jews. The attorney general, which is the police, the secretary of the treasury, which is the money power, the secretary of state, which is foreign policy and war. So uh, he's making the same point that you made earlier. And I, even though I still think that this is not so much about Israel and it's not even so much purely about Jewish power, I think it's about the American empire, but yeah, look who's, who hijacked the American empire on 9-11 and is, and is still in control of it. There is an ethnic angle here. Thank you. Um, I, I really appreciate him calling out the 800 pound gorilla in the room because I think a lot of people know it, but um, can't say it or else they're purposefully ignorant or they know and they're afraid to say it. But um, everyone says it's the U S as the global hegemon, but um, the tip top of the Western oligarchy, the 1% of the 1%, obviously still is full of wasps, obviously. But 
at this point in time, as you said, the Western hegemony has been hijacked by elite diasporan Jews who are now calling the shots. Um, and it's not just Biden administration is over 40% Jewish. The World Economic Forum is dominated by Jews. And the most important is BlackRock, a thoroughly Jewish company that fi- financially controls virtually every top corporation, as well as almost every country in the world. No other entity has that much global financial control. Not the city of London, the Vatican, Italian mafia, the Russians, the Chinese follow the money, but we barely know our history. So I highly recommend people read the two articles that Paul um, Craig Roberts has in this uh, article that he put out. And I'd like to finalize with a very important um, case in point about um, knowing our history to know the past is to know the present. And that is the Morgenthau plan. Henry Morgenthau was Franklin Roosevelt's secretary of treasurer and one of his leading advisors during World War II. Morgenthau was Jewish and extremely anti-German. The 1941 Morgenthau plan was uh, primarily would do two things. Deindustrialize Germany so that any possibility of its future, future industrial strength would be destroyed. And to confiscate German farmland so that the country can't feed itself. It was completely understood that millions of Germans would starve to death as a result of the Morgenthau plan. Morgenthau's extermination policy for Germans never got fully implemented, but the Nord Stream terrorist attack does not seem too far off the mark in terms of deindustrializing Germany, and we know severe food shortages are coming soon everywhere. So connect the dots there. So it's Morgenthau too. And by the way, Paul Craig Roberts is is not some sort of you know street person waving a swastika. Paul Craig Roberts is the former editor of the Wall Street Journal, the architect of Reaganomics from his under uh, secretary of the Treasury position during the Reagan administration. So uh, he's he's saying very strong things uh, for somebody with that kind of resume. In the next slide. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Celia Farber uh, points out that this destruction of Nord Stream is a way of making sure that Germany doesn't ever mend fences with Russia and get that pipeline going again, or at least not anytime in, in soon. And it's happening right on the eve of all of these anti-EU protests in Europe and even over in Uganda, Africa. Uh, these protesters are demanding an end to the Russian sanctions and a restoration of gas contracts. They want to turn the gas back on. Well, somebody just made sure that that's not going to happen. I wonder who that could be. Right. Well, I appreciate Celia um, for publicizing all these protests because they've been so censored. You can't really see them many places. Um, Anti-American sentiment among Germans has reached new heights in the last few days. I and wonder why not, that could be. Well, it's <laughs> not just common protesters either, the people who get out in the streets. Um, a guy named Wolfgang Grupp, he's the owner of one of Germany's largest textile companies, and he's calling for a break with America. So Germany is the biggest vassal state, vassal country in Europe. And so for industrialists to start speaking out, Hopefully, maybe they'll get together and not let this new world order come to pass. Germany has to be at the front lines, but they've been so indoctrinated after World War II, they were practically destroyed as a people. Now they're just a vassal state. So hopefully this will trigger them and get them awake. Yeah, it's ironic how these folks who are so, they hate German nationalism and they fear it. And then they treat the Germans in such a way as to really whip them up into a frenzy of anger and nationalism. Uh, it's, it seems like it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and speaking of sabotage, all of this Nord Stream sabotage got all the headlines, uh, although they were buried under the hurricane headlines. But how about this disaster over at the produce market in Paris? It's almost as if somebody really does want to starve Europe. Uh, well, I don't know if hitting this one produce market in Paris is going to starve Europe, but still, it's, uh, it is a little odd. There have been a lot of odd sort of attacks and accidents at food facilities, haven't there? Yeah. Um, they are creating these food shortages. Our food supply is totally being sabotaged by controlled demolitions. Um, what I'd like to talk about a bit is in November 2015, there was a two-day simulation on the whole global food security. That's like um, event 201 right before COVID. Well, in 2015, they convened this, how they're going to game out how the world would respond to future food shortages. And there were like 65 public and private leaders there, NGOs, uh, big ag like Cargill. And what they 
looked at was issues facing humanity. So they took into account uh, climate, extreme weather events, governments toppling like Ukraine, famines and refugee crises. But they had some very scary specific scenarios um, back in 2015. They said that a steep price spike with looming global food shortages in 2022 would prompt EU players to impose a tax on meat. And the simulation game ended with an imposition of a global carbon tax. So just like Event 201 and the 9-11 Nora drills, these simulations are just fig leaf dress rehearsals for a new world order reality our overlords want to implement. It sounds like uh, the Operation Gladio usual suspects might be messing with this market in Paris. Yes. Um, it's not very nice. Paris, there's a lot of good food in Paris. I, I take it personally when people uh, attack the capital of the great cuisine. Um, okay, let's move on to our censorship and police state news. Uh, <laughs> this is, this is a, a kind of, usually we end with funny stories, but this is kind of a funny story for the beginning of our censorship session. For, what did they censor this week? Well, one thing they censored was a live stream broadcast of burning gas stoves, all four burners burning on this Russian gas stove, uh, perpetually with a clock. So you can see that it's, it's real live. It's not a loop. And this is the Russian gas one channel. Uh, and there's Russian music accompanying it. So they're obviously trolling the Europeans who are now paying these ridiculous prices for gas. And, and this channel is telling uh, telling the Europeans that the Russian who's burning his gas like this is paying like a dollar a month or something for the gas. So uh, I guess the censorship authorities thought this was a little bit too extreme to let the Europeans uh, see that. And they took it down. Yeah, it might as well be free. Um, what I don't get is can bots figure out this sort of creative non-textual message or did it take a human to understand the implication of what this, yeah. this still scene was like? Um, I looked up the platform Twitch. They also censored Donald Trump's campaign in 2020 for hateful conduct, conduct. Um, Twitch is owned by Amazon. So there you go. It's just more big brother acting out. Yeah, that's what I figured. More censorship news. Uh, this story actually is kind of an old one. I think we already covered it, but you wanted to talk about it again, Kat, so we will. That's the Neuronovets, uh death list or hit list where they've put Chris Hedges, Glenn Greenwald, John Mersheimer, Roger Waters, Senator Rand Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, even Edward Lutvak uh, on my list of 9-11 suspects for his coup d'etat book, and, and Henry Kissinger. Uh, that's pretty crazy. A lot of the, you know, and, and look, Cat. Uh, okay, we have on this list... Uh, Greenwald, Lutvak, and Kissinger all are from Jewish origin, and and the greatest Russia scholar, who's basically a a peace with Russia guy, who just sadly passed away recently, Cohen, is of Jewish ethnicity as well. So I think when we say that the Jews are behind this, we don't mean all the Jews. What we mean is a certain school of thought oh. among people who may have a certain ethnic bond. Uh, that is neocons, really. Get, well, it's they, not they just the neocons. It's not just them. That's why I say elite Jewish diasporans it's mm, it's yeah. not just Israelis well, it's, it's, the Jewish it's elite. not the rank and file right but but some of these Jewish elite guys uh Kissinger uh Greenwald uh and, and Lutvak I mean they're all sort of Jewish elite too but they are dissidents so just because somebody is Jewish doesn't put them in the camp of the warmongers necessarily absolutely absolutely I I uh, that, that's one of okay. the bones and it of should go without yeah. saying but we might as well just say it and uh <laughs> So nobody draws the wrong conclusions. Exactly. Thank you. Always have to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The oblig We should put this on our obligatory disclaimers list. Thank you. The show. Or at right. least when I'm on, because uh, it well, no, I'm Michael it, Jones. You're not the only one, Kat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not all Jews. We should just have a slide that says that. It's not Thank all Jews. You. Just quickly yeah. go through it you know, every week. <laughs> okay. I love it. Okay, Please more do. censorship news. How about uh, the uh, pro-life activist uh, who's taken out by a SWAT team because he, he speaks outside of abortion clinics. I mean, whatever you think about the abortion issue, that's a little extreme. Um, well, in the U.S., um, we've become a mirror image of the Soviet Stalinism. And Russia has become the embodiment of many of the tr traditional values that everyday Americans always stood for. We're living in 1984 upside-down world. We sure are. Okay, well, let, let's, uh, speaking of, of 
issues that feminists are interested in. How about let's go from abortion and protest to women in politics and talk about uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, Georgia Maloney, who just got elected in Italy, and of course, our good friend Nancy Pelosi. Starting with Ardern, she wants a global censorship system. She says that the world is going to hell because people have free speech, and we've got to end that. Uh, so that's a utopian proposal to solve all the world's problems by shutting everybody up. Uh, I, I assume you're against that, Kat. Oh, my God. Um, the article said how she is the smiling face of the new generation of censors. It's a rictus smile that hides a new world order agenda. She's one of the World Economic Forum's young global leaders, and um, she's a traitor to we the people. An example of a case in point is her deceit in her opening greeting at the UN. She spoke in the Tonga language, um, New Zealand's first peoples. Um, in the past, I would have welcomed the inclusion of an indigenous boy, voice, but knowing globalism is just a new form of neocolonialism, her greeting was a cynical ploy to telegraph diversity. So, but in my book, it's pure cultural appropriation. She's a Trojan horse and hidden within her velvet glove of wokeness and deceptive charm lurks the iron fist of a true authoritarian. Okay, well, we're, we're going from the bad to the good and then the ugly here. So so she's the bad, and uh, the one that we think would be relatively good is uh, Georgia Maloney. She's, well, relatively maybe the word here. Uh, Breitbart seems to like her, which is not necessarily that great of a sign. But she said some things that I, I really uh, would tend to like. Uh, why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so afraid? Why, why are the elites waging a war on the family? Is it depopulation, I suppose? Uh, so she's raising some good questions. She's pushing back against the warmongering and uh, doing some other good things. And so, of course, they're calling her the next coming of Hitler. They're going to put paint a grease, grease paint Hitler mustache on her. Uh, but uh, don't believe that, folks. She, she seems fairly reasonable. What do you think, Kat, though? Is she, is she a Trojan horse or is she, is she a real dissident? Well, she's presented as, um, I, I love what she puts out there. It's very good, but I, I'm beginning to think she might be a Trojan horse. For example, um, I saw, I mean, things can be doctored, but I saw she seems to be supporting Ukraine. She wrote some private Twitter thing to um, Zelensky. But the biggest bottom line, most important indictment of her is that she apparently 100% supports COVID vaccines and the vaccine passport. Um, it, 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 that vaccine passport is straight up mass population gateway to the new world order. So you have to choose your battles, but that digital password is a deal breaker for me. I, I wanted, I, my knee jerk reaction was, oh yes, another Putin type voice for, um, family values or whatever against new world order. But when I saw she was pr um, promoting COVID and supporting it, she can't be that incompetent dumb. I, I just, I, I feel like she's probably a Trojan horse. Okay. So, uh, Ardern is the bad and, uh, Maloney is the maybe not so good. Let's move on to the ugly. And that would be Nancy Pelosi. Uh, she's the warmongering witch of the West, according to my new American Free Press article, pointing out that she went to Ukraine in April, the highest ranking official to go and cheer on the war, uh, and to reiterate, uh, what, what, uh, Boris Johnson had just said, which is that no Zelensky, you're not allowed to make peace with Russia. We're going to fight to the last Ukrainian. You're going to take our orders. And she reiterated that. Then she went to Taiwan in August to try to stir up a war with China and almost did. And then uh, she went to Armenia just this past, what, a week and a half ago or whatever, and tried to open up a new front on Russia to get the Armenia-Azerbaijan war going again. So, you know, she's never seen a, a, a terrible situation that she doesn't think she can make worse. You know, she goes to where there's a fire and she puts it out by throwing gasoline on it. And for that reason, I, I wrote this little tribute to her. Well, shadiness is in her DNA. She comes from a serious Italian mafioso family from Baltimore that was deeply involved in Democratic uh, Party politics. And then she's part of the California cabal. Uh, Pelosi, Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, and the Gettys, with all their families, are intricately enmeshed with each other. She's just bad news all the way around. They need to cut off her adrenochrome fix so she can naturally die off the world stage. Well, you know, Kat, I should have known you you weren't the kind of feminist or ex-feminist who would be cheering for every woman in politics. Uh, so let's see if I can really, you know, get you going here with this next article, another of my articles. Uh, 
pushing back against this notion of abolishing girl sports because there, there is this uh, professor uh, of gender studies or whatever who or sociology who thinks that the only reason that there's any difference between male and female athletic performance is purely just culture. It has nothing to do with biology. There's no biological difference between male and female. So we should just completely break down those boundaries. Anybody can call themselves whatever they want. Anybody competes together on the athletic field, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I did a sort of deplorable pushback against that. And I wonder what you think about it. Um, well, I really 100% agree with your take on transgenderism. That's just totally sick. There are core biological differences between the sexes, so I totally support that. But you had some premises, Kevin, that were kind of narrowly constructed. Um, for example, you said that the biggest loser in a free sex society is um, a, a female sentence to a loveless life of subservience and menial jobs um, versus a life as a housewife, housewife with a faithful man to love and protect her and great in-laws. So, you know, if you're a lawyer, are you going to be stuck, uh, left forever in a loveless life and go to subservient menial jobs? I mean, it was a straw man. Well, that'd be even worse. If it, being a lawyer would be even worse. <laughs> even probably, more but it just doesn't, uh, conform to your straw woman, straw man argument that, um, a woman will find satisfaction in the domestic sphere. That sphere that's very hard for me to wrap my head around. Um, I am not interested in the domestic scene. I don't feel loveless, and I've never been stuck with menial jobs. So I think it's a your your presumptions are uh, kind of contrived, and there are a lot of gaps there. I'm all for traditional values, but more for the spirit of them, not the letter of the law. The society that you described, I don't think is um, any more attainable than caveman days um, interactions. And as we move into the 21st century, I think the bigger question is how can we keep the best of the values and leave the downside behind? We need to authentically adapt traditional values in a rapidly changing world. So that doesn't mean capitulate to the evils of the futuristic change, but neither does it mean to try to recapture some golden era in history that for all practical purposes is no longer attainable. Okay. Well, that's, that's a pretty uh, reasonable critique. I have to admit. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. There, there are, I think even in the bad old days uh, or good old days or whatever they were, the days when family was the main thing and most of women's productive activities involved having and raising children and taking care of family and negotiating extended family power networks. But even in those days, there were significant numbers of women who wanted to do something else and in many cases succeeded in doing it. Um, you know, Prophet Muhammad's first wife, Khadija, was a uh, uh, basically the equivalent of a successful businesswoman back in those days. There, there are all sorts of women who did that. And there's no reason why women should ever be barred from doing that sort of thing. But there are also, for every lawyer, right? Lawyers are a tiny elite, uh, you know, one out of every, you know, maybe 30 or 40 people is even capable of becoming a lawyer, uh, whether they're male or female. And so that for the majority of people, I do think that the traditional model probably makes more sense, but it certainly shouldn't be absolutely legislated and enforced. Women shouldn't be banned from, uh, from activities, obviously. So anyway, I, yeah, I think you're you're probably onto something there, Kat. I, I knew you'd have something uh, pertinent to say about that particular article. <laughs> Let's move on to election news. Uh, so the mainstream liberal media, the Post, the New York Times, CNN, they all pretty much tell us that, hey, the Democrats are picking up steam. But actually, the polls from ABC News and Washington Post show that Republicans are still ahead 21 points in battleground states, 55 to 34 in the competitive races. So it does look like this next uh, election will not be an exception to the rule that you know, the uh, midterm elections tend to favor the party that doesn't have the White House. Well, the big question is whether the elections have been reformed to eliminate election theft tactics like ballot harvesting and computer hacking. We're not all, allowed to say that. Well, <laughs> oh, right. Oh, gosh. But um, all elections have been jiggered to some degree or other. But I, I contend, many people contend that the order of magnitude of election theft of the 2020 election is so beyond the pale that it seriously continues to endanger our democratic principles. But on another note, here in New York, um, we have a medical freedom party that's actually running eight candidates, three of whom are friends of mine. So we're, we're, we're at it. We're, we're trying to get in the big house and see what we can do. 
Okay. Well, the thing about elections is they can be rigged not only at the ballot box, not only through the computer counting, which is probably the most vulnerable point of the vote counting apparatus, but they can be rigged through big tech and through social media. It's been, it, there was a professor who did a huge study of this 10, 20, more than 10 years ago, I believe. And he said that big tech, uh, even just one big tech outfit, uh, like Facebook, for instance, could rig an election in, in, most of the countries where it was popular, uh, they can change the algorithm to change people's behavior and perceptions. And so here's Ron Johnson, who's worried about sort of the most extreme, you know, tip of the iceberg that's visible part of this, talking about YouTube censoring and banning his videos, taking down his videos, taking down footage of, of his U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee hearing on the vaccines uh, two days later and then taking it down when Fox put it up. Uh, it's, it's one thing to tweak the algorithms to make sure that the candidate you like wins. And it's even more extreme to just outright censor a United States senator. So even though I disagree with Ron Johnson on many things, I'm probably going to even vote for him just because he's standing up against censorship and he's dedicated to exposing COVID origins. And those two issues, I think, are so important that it's worth uh, supporting him on that. Well, I didn't really know much about him, but in reading, I see that he's also going after Hunter Biden. Thank you. Somebody should do that. And Russiagate. So, I mean, he's just going for a lot of the truths. Right now, um, I look to see how's he doing. Um, he's a mere five points ahead of his um, opponent, which is Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who, um, for this U.S. Senate race. So, oh, please vote for, vote for Ron. Um, I hope he does well. Okay. Well, we're both voting for Ron then. Uh, let's uh, check out this next story. This is the David Cole story, right? David Cole, uh, or David Cole Stein, he had to change his name due to death threats uh, from the uh, Jewish Defense League. Uh, he, he was a the famous Jewish Holocaust denier. More proof that just because somebody's Jewish, they can't you know tell the truth about certain things. And uh, so he, he went underground for a long time. He resurfaced, and he's he's a very interesting sort of conservative commentator these days. And here he's telling us that the uh, people saying that Ray Epps, the alleged COINTELPRO infiltrator who may have helped stir up the trouble at January sixth. Uh, is, is a Fed that, in fact, there's not really evidence that he is, and he thinks that the pro-Trump wing and the pro-J6 people wing uh, of the Republicans are making it harder for Republicans to get elected. What do you think, Kat? Um, well, I really like David Cole a lot. He has a lot of good politics, but he also has um, some major blind spots, and January sure. 6th is one of them, and that's not why I put forth this article. Um, what I appreciate, he, he's very um, intuitive and has some great ideas, but some numbskull ones. He's, you know, he's calling other people soft skull. You know, he can be a numbskull too. But what the main premise of this article is, is he's saying Ron DeSantis has policies and deals with issues that address the needs of voters. Whereas Trump is just a straight up narcissist with a cult following um, and any campaign would therefore be about Trump. So I agree. I really hope Trump does not run in 2024 because the entire campaign would be reduced to a referendum on Trump. Um, I'd prefer to see someone like Rand Paul run. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I would love uh, Rand Paul. Uh, DeSantis, I'm not so sure about. But even Rand Paul uh, and all these other Republicans, uh, to me, are problematic in that they're still representing the oligarch class that dominates the country. And we see in the next slide, uh, here's our obligatory Tom Hartman story submitted by Alan, the producer. Mm -hmm. But this one is one that I actually basically agree with. Uh, he points out you know, that it's, it may be counterintuitive, but taxes, uh, raising taxes, uh, especially on the rich, uh, actually does take money away from the rich, but raising taxes on working people doesn't really take money uh, away from them. And that's due to Ricardo's iron law of labor, which is all that matters is take home pay. That is, if it takes 15 bucks an hour to get a competent person to come make something in a factory or uh, work in a restaurant or whatever it is, they just have to be able to take home 15 bucks. And so if you tax them, then the employer has to raise their 
their salary up to say 20 bucks so that they still have that 15 bucks of take home pay. So taxes don't really affect working people that much, at least income taxes. The payroll taxes is a slightly another matter, I suppose. Um, so he's arguing in favor of going back to the high marginal tax rates on the super rich. We had 90% plus marginal tax rates on the super rich under Eisenhower. And there's no reason not to go back to that. The Democrats are much more open to that, or some of them anyway. Uh, but the Republicans, being totally the party of the billionaire oligarch greedheads who want to take home all the money themselves and keep piling it up and increasing inequality until the whole country burns, uh, it makes me, this is one of the things I disagree with Ron Johnson about. And I actually agree with Tom Hartman. How about you? Um, I actually agree with him, too. Yeah, put the fat cats in the 91% tax bracket. But I think his... his proposal was rather simplistic. Um, there are a couple issues that um, I'd like to um, kind of elucidate on. Um, for example, billionaires have a gazillion loopholes to avoid taxes. I probably paid more taxes last year than Jeff Bezos because I think he legally didn't have to pay any. So if uh, tax, what we need is tax loopholes to be strenuously monitored for fairness because the people who really will carry the burden and don't have all of those uh, tax loopholes and a battery of lawyers, tax lawyers looking for them, the people who are really going to carry the burden are the modest, um, the modestly rich people in the say two to three million dollar bracket. They tend to be people who have worked hard and have earned their pay. They're not parasitical financiers or recipients of multi-generational wealth. So um, I, I don't want to see I, I don't want to see the modestly wealthy go after the multimillionaires and the billionaires and trillionaires. And I don't know if it'll do that because it's not he didn't talk anything about tax loopholes. The other thing is, is the era he talked about as being the most prosperous for the nation was 1940 to 1980. Well, let's remember that those were the years uh, before the capitalists gutted our economy by sending vast numbers of jobs overseas for cheap labor. Taxes don't mean anything if people don't have jobs. But now they want them. Here's the Democrats idea is having living on UBI. And actually, um Rather than trying to restore work with dignity, what these great resetters are planning is a whole new social credit monetary system, as well as the fourth industrial revolution, where there'll be mostly AI drones and our labor and our behavior will be monetized. So by 2030, we'll supposedly have nothing and be happy. But it sounds like our entire existence will be one ongoing ginormous, ginormous tax. So we're really going to be living a tax. We will be the, the tax. Our bodies ourselves are going to be the tax. Well, that's a great point, Kat, and that leads into our next story. The real, the bad thing about taxes for ordinary people isn't so much that it, it takes away their money, as Hartman points out. It doesn't take away so much of their money, but what it does is it puts them under surveillance. When you have an income tax, theoretically, every penny that goes from one hand to another, one account to another, has to be surveilled one way or another. You have to, if the IRS comes after you, no matter, even if you're, you're extremely poor, theoretically, you still have to try to prove how much money you made. And every transaction that means that went through your hands is part of your quote income or could be potentially part of your quote income. And you have to be able to document that. And so essentially you're under surveillance, whether it's partly self surveillance or whether they're surveilling you is another question. Well, here is the FBI, uh, proving the horrors of this kind of total financial surveillance that ends all financial privacy, which taxes tend to do, by busting in to this U.S. private vaults office in Florida and just stealing all the money from everybody's box. There were 700 boxes in there. Of those, nine were linked with law enforcement investigations, and nobody had ever been proven guilty of anything. And still, the FBI went in and just tried to steal everybody's money and not give it back. Why? Because they say, quote, only those who wish to hide their wealth from the DEA, IRS, or creditors would rent a box anonymously at U.S. private vaults. So that's the problem with, with taxation is that it ends financial privacy. My argument would be that we should end the income tax completely. No need to file for anybody at the 90th percentile of the tax bracket or below, and then no need to pay except for the top, say, 5% or even 1%. But I think that the privileges that the wealthy people have, thanks to their wealth, should be paid for by giving up their privacy. Because when you have power, it has to be used responsibly. And so I think 
the FBI and everybody else, and all of us should basically force total transparency on the rich. The richer you are, the more totally transparent your finances should have to be. For the 90% at the bottom, you should have absolute financial privacy. And I would be happy to run for office on that platform if people give me money. <laughs> well, you're talking about going back to pre-1913, um, which I love your ideas. Those were really good ideas. Um, I think we have to be um, in this age of extreme FBI overreach, we also have to be on guard for the 88,000 new IRS agents. Um, but one thing that really gets my goat is, yes, it's important to go after drug dealers and other vice crimes, but I'm far more interested in the feds going after white collar crooks. White collar crime is through the roof and infinitely more damaging to the financial fabric of society than vice crimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and all those people who complain about the black crime rate, they blame black people for all the crime. I think if we if they actually prosecuted uh, white collar crime, you would discover <laughs> that the uh, cost to society from the white collar crime is probably uh, worse than the cost of the street crime. And uh, the two races would look a lot more uh, equal. But in And if you were to break down the cost of the um, white collar crime into demographics, it is shocking which demographic is above and beyond taking more money than anybody else in white collar crime. So I um, okay. challenge people investigate to investigate which, uh, which, which, uh, <laughs> which businesses get struck by lightning uh, for the insurance money and things like that. Okay, moving on <laughs> to uh, the case for dismantling the FBI. Yeah, if the FBI is just breaking into places and stealing people's money, maybe they should be abolished. But there's a lot more. They have a long history of persecuting people, assassinating people. Uh, they may have killed Martin Luther King. They certainly tried to get him to commit suicide, and they probably were in on his assassination. They persecuted anti-Korean war protesters. Uh, they murdered Black Panthers, civil rights workers, and, and even they went after John Denver? Are you kidding? Uh, so maybe it's a Colorado Rocky Mountain High was an advertising jingle for drug sales. I mean, come on, guys. But yeah, the FBI has a terrible record. They're, they're the American Stasi uh, run by organized crime. Hoover was controlled by Meyer Lansky, who had dirty pictures of Hoover and Clyde Tolson in his safe. Um, the FBI is corrupt from top to bottom. Well, maybe it's corrupt at the top and maybe not so much at the bottom. But uh, something needs to be done, maybe to just be abolished. Well, I'm opposed to the FBI as a politicized secret police force, but I'm not sure if I agree with the writer's call to tear it all down. That's sort of like the defund the police movement. Um, if it's taught us anything, these drastic solutions are not necessarily the best. And if we do go after the FBI, then, hey, let's go after the CIA. Let's start with the CIA. Pardon? We should start with getting rid of the CIA. That's just a complete criminal organization. Exactly. Um, and JFK had similar thoughts when he famously said he wanted to splinter the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. So um, I agree with uh, also the um, F, um, the writer's statement that about um, J. Edgar Hoover, that the FBI has never managed to escape the paranoia and corruption of J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, his biggest problem was that he was Epstein by the Jewish crime syndicate. Uh, as you said, they let him, uh, they had it over on him that he was a transvestite with his uh, secret lover, FBI agent Clyde Tolson. Um, and he was deeply compromised. Um, and so that would um, also compromise the whole organization. Whitney Webb has a great new book out on all of this. It's called One Nation Under Blackmail, the sordid union between intelligence and crime that gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein. It's such a big, thick, documented book. It had to be divided in two books. It's out now. But I bet there are two things about J. Edgar Hoover that her book doesn't cover. Uh, one is, according to William Pepper, the attorney for the King assassination civil lawsuit, for 30 years he worked on this, he wrote a book that said King did not die on the balcony at Memphis. He was taken to a hospital where at least one FBI agent and two other men spit on Martin Luther King as he lay in the hospital bed and then smothered him with a pillow so that um, Martin Luther King really died of asphyxiation. And there was an eyewitness to that, a black nurse. Um, and the other thing that I bet is not in her book is that J. Edgar Hoover was actually a black man passing as white. According to Millie McGee, who's a distant no, relative, she claims... black. Well, okay, biracial. <laughs> Anybody who's biracial now, they call them black. 
But in any event, um, in her book, she claims her grandfather, a black man, was Hoover's second cousin. And I've seen a documentary where she shows the um, the, the cemetery um, tombstones and everything. So two big secrets that went down with J. Edgar Hoover. Glad he's out. Indeed. Okay. Well, I guess I guess today, uh, you know, maybe if there, if Hoover, somebody like Hoover were still around, they might actually have an advantage being biracial. But back in those days, it was uh, a huge scandal that had to be covered up by any means necessary. Uh, well, moving on to Zionist entity news, uh, a couple of good articles here. Uh, this is the uh, demand for straight talk from the peace movement from Phil Giraldi, the former CIA officer. Uh, points out that the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces chief rabbi, Ayel Karim, approves of his soldiers raping uh, attracting uh, attractive Gentile women as a way to keep up morale. Uh, just one example, the slaughter of Shireen Abu Akla, the American-Palestinian journalist, uh, deliberate murder, nobody's paying for it, and on and on and on. We could go on for hours and hours and days and weeks and months cataloging the crimes of the Zionist entity, but uh, I think... Uh, this article does a pretty good job of summarizing some of it and pointing out that the peace movement needs to uh, start talking about it. Well, Phil Girardi has been one of the few brave people who consistently calls out Jewish power and not with just um, bigoted opinionating. He has statistic and, and fact after fact. And in this article, he's saying that people who genuinely want peace need to be um, honest about who is pushing for all these wars and why. And it's time to stop the euphemisms because we're afraid of offending Jews. Um, it just empowers them more. Um, in this article, Girardi also links to um, an earlier article that he had um, asking again for straight talk. And his, the title of his article is How Jewish is the War Against Russia? And he said it very much is because it's overwhelmingly a neocon war. Conservative Straussian Jews hate Russia with a passion, but equally toxic are the neoliberal Jews who favor a strong assertive America and spout phony catchwords like democracy and freedom. So both the neocons and the neoliberals inevitably support the same policies. They just go at it from different ends of the political spectrum. So in addition to dominating foreign policy of both major parties, they also control influence through media and entertainment. Therefore, the American public is by and large left with only a Jewish viewpoint. And Ukraine is one of the largest Jewish communities in the world. It's a major part of the peace problem that we can't say how monumentally influential Elite diasporan Jews are in dictating the strategy and politics of Ukraine. And Zelensky's ethnicity is no coincidence. And uh, False Flag Weekly News is one of the few places where you can hear that analysis. And E. Michael Jones, who's famous for that kind of analysis, will be on next week. So uh, at least if they haven't shut us down by then. Well, uh, another uh, Zionist entity story was this one from Richard Silverstein pointing out that the polling data is showing a big shift towards pro-Palestine, uh, especially among young people. So uh, I guess that's good news. The the left is actually waking up on this, even if they're going to sleep on a lot of other things. And the uh, younger people are also waking up. Um, these trends um, are obviously promising. Um, however, I think these positive numbers might not tell the full story because young people and liberal Democrats tend to be the most woke. And I would wager their support for Palestinians is based on Palestinians being in the BIPOC category, black, indigenous, and people of color. Palestinians would qualify because they're both indigenous and people of color. Now, if Palestinians were white, I question how much their struggle would matter to young people and liberals, because these groups are highly programmed. Do they really care about Palestinians, or is it because Palestinians fit in their woke BIPOC checkbox? So it may not because they're, be because they're getting increasingly progressive. Um, it's because they're brainwashed with orthodox ideology and Russia phobia tells them to support Ukraine, Nazi and all, and they're right in with it. Um, so I, I don't know how much we can celebrate. I'm glad they're um, down for the uh, Palestinian cause, but um, it, it's not necessarily because they're aware. I think it's more because they're, they're woke. Okay. And, the next story uh, has another Israeli angle, uh, which is that the anthrax letters sent about this time of year in uh, 2001 uh, have never been investigated. 
Democrats in the House have blocked any meaningful congressional inquiry into the origins of the COVID pandemic. And before that, the uh, House and Senate refused to investigate an attack on their own members. Um, Patrick Leahy uh, and uh, who was the other one? Uh, the, uh, the other senator, the two senators who were trying to stop the Patriot Act got anthrax in the mail. And there's never been a, a real inquiry. Uh, the FBI blamed Bruce Ivins, who was quickly suicided. That obviously wasn't true. And uh, Obama threatened to veto any congressional move to investigate the anthrax attacks and so on, so on and so forth. So th- this article um, by Sam Husseini is a really good read. Uh, it's something to remember as we still deal with this uh, problem of COVID origins and hope that people like Ron Johnson and Rand Paul will get a chance to investigate it. Um, well, yeah, and there's no praise for people who do the great public service of keeping old stories alive, important old stories. Um, proactively ignoring significant news amounts to purposeful memory holding. So bravo for him for doing that public service of keeping these important stories alive. And what's so Orwellian, Orwellian is that um, another important story um, that Congress is investigating it that is it is important for reasons that they're not even saying and they're spending hours and millions of dollars investigating literally a trumped up affair of the supposed insurrection rather than investigating the actual facts of the um, stolen election um, there's many, many uh, facts that point to it, and they've all been thrown out of court, most of them. More and more now they're not, but they were not because of the merit, but because of some loophole on procedure grounds. So they're, they have this big investigative committee that's totally ass backwards investigating the wrong stuff. Um, indeed. Well, we've had a lot of bad news this week, so let's let's end with something really <laughs> uplifting. And let's end with our, our tribute to the U.S. Uh, strong and enduring alliance with North Korea. Uh, that's what we heard from Vice President Harris this week, and I think we should all take a moment uh, to in, in tribute to that uh, wonderful, longstanding North Korea alliance that we all cherish. <laughs> She's probably trying to edge her way in and, to- uh, and top Trump's buddy-buddy relationship with Kim Jong-un. Okay. And, and finally, another, another solemn uh, moment of tribute. Uh, we should join President Biden in uh, asking whether Representative Jackie Walorski is is here jackie are you here uh hopefully jackie is in the other world preferably in the good place uh and she so she is here and uh and joe is right and we all uh salute our our great leaders uh kamala and joe uh some call them dumb and dumber but that would be unkind so we won't do that well hopefully him doing this stupid faux pas will bring to light again jackie laworski's name she was a co-sponsor of a 2014 congressional act on the prevention of human trafficking. And she was supposedly working with Anne Hesch, the actress, on ending child sex trafficking. That both of them died in car wrecks within a week of each other? Hmm. Just sounds really suspicious. Well, maybe that's why she was on Joe Biden's mind. Uh, we right. can only speculate. Uh, so much for our uh, uplifting, uh, humorous ending. It always gets so serious here at False Flag Weekly News, but that's because we do take our job seriously. Well, thank you so much, Kat McGuire. You're doing great work uh, on many fronts. Keep it up. Okay, have fun at your tailgater. Okay, uh, and thank you to our viewers and supporters. Please do help us catch up with the fundraiser. If you watch watched this far, you must like it. So send us some funds through fundraiser. Thanks. Uh, take care. See you all next week. Bye.